Hi, and welcome to this episode of Shotguns and Sugar, where we take a look at the history you don't always learn about in school. I'm Charles Bukloski, and in this episode, one of a series on the American Civil War on the world stage, I'm going to discuss nationalism and ethnic unity within the context of European interest in the American Civil War. As I noted in the introduction to this series, this topic originated from a lecture I developed for college classes I've taught in both United States and world history. For those of you who would like to further investigate this topic, or perhaps are looking for sources on the subject for your own purposes, a list of works is available on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. Those of you who took the time to listen to my introductory podcast on this topic will recall that I ended that broadcast asking what impact the Civil War had on the idea of nationalism. So let's start with a brief history of the term and why this question even came up. I realize this is more than a little philosophical, but since philosophy provides a foundation for actions, it's a good idea to start there. Although the term is relatively new, the idea of nationalism has a long, long history. The Jewish Maccabean movement, which culminated in the Siege of Masada in 74 CE, is an example of ancient nationalism. However, Johann Gottfried Herder was the first to use it in his Treatise on the Origin of Language. First published in 1772, this essay, in part, stresses the role of a common language in the creation of a national identity. Although they use different terms, such thinkers as Rousseau and Voltaire in the late 1700s also discussed the concept. It is the relative newness of the term during the 1860s that caused European thinkers to focus on the American Civil War as a case study of sorts to investigate nationalism and its various permutations. As an ideology, nationalism is frequently defined and redefined in terms of the academic field using it at the moment. In the 20th century, philosophers, political scientists, and sociologists and the like took the concept of nationalism and spun it around like a top, coming up with various ways to view it. For example, the concept of patriotic nationalism finds its expression in the types of imagery that supports the existing state, like anthems, myths, flags, and narratives. However, the concept of nationalism, as it applies to European interests in the Civil War, really involves three views of the topic, civic nationalism, ethnic nationalism, and geographic nationalism, a term I use to separate out a specific style of civic nationalism. In the early and mid-1800s, Britain and many other European nations adhered to a form of civic nationalism that is tied to long-lasting countries with a strong central ruler or ruling class, as well as a common language, customs, religion, economy, geography, and the like. Evidence for this conclusion is found in the way that many European intellectuals of the day simply could not see how a nation could exist without a monarch. French history provides some support for this argument. The French threw out their monarchy in, seven, in the 1790s when they tried their own experiment with the citizen as ruler. However, in 1851, the nation reverted to a monarchy when Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte instituted a coup and named himself Emperor Napoleon III, at the start of the Second French Empire, a dictatorship that lasted until well after the American Civil War was over. By the 1860s, monarchs had used the doctrine of the divine right of kings to govern most European nations for centuries. It was a style of governance that they were comfortable with. 
European nations like France and England, with the encouragement of the local aristocracy, even foisted Maximilian on Mexico and created the Second Mexican Empire during the 1860s. The Europeans wanted a monarchy, at least in part, to ensure that Mexico repaid its debts to them that it incurred during Santa Ana's rule in the 1840s when the country lost the Texas War for Independence. In fact, much of the European intellectual community viewed the Civil War as justification for their position on the need for a monarch. Many, in fact, argued that without a monarchy, the Civil War would tear the United States apart, thus proving their point. But there was more to the idea of nationalism and how America would deal with it than just the perceived need among Europeans for a single head of state, be it monarch or dictator. In a way, it had more to do with family and family relations, which ties closer to the idea of ethnic nationalism, or the creation of a sovereign state based on a commonly shared ancestry, like Israel. However, when this shared ancestry crosses national boundaries, it becomes ethnic unity. If you sit down and spend a half hour watching the BBC News, you will likely see stories about American politics, American economic issues, health care, film, skiing, and other forms of recreation, along with other topics of interest to the American and British public. You'll find similar stories on television stations and magazines and newspapers targeted at other international groups, Asians, Hispanics, and Europeans, to mention just a few. Obviously, in the global society which we live in today, people from other parts of the world are interested in what happens here just as we are interested in what happens there. Although we typically don't think of the 1860s as a global society, I believe some of the same reasons that brought about globalization in the 1980s and 1990s prompted the international community to care about us in the 1860s just as they do now. As immigrants, we brought social and cultural elements with us from our mother countries. The way these elements mix together has given us the distinctive American society we have today, and this mixture was just starting to pull together during the middle of the 1800s. The nation was born of European ideas that developed during the Reformation and, later, the Enlightenment. Both European and Native American cultures heavily influenced our attitudes towards conquest of land. Since colonial times, our economic life has been closely tied to the transatlantic trade with Europe, the Caribbean, and especially Africa. These economic ties brought the seeds of multiple non-European cultures to North America. Similarly, the massive immigration during the 1840s and 50s from both Europe and Asia demanded changes in both our own socio-cultural attitudes and our relations with other countries, particularly those where the new immigrants continued to communicate with their relatives and friends whom they had left behind in their mother countries. It is this concept of common social and economic connections between different countries and their citizens that is sometimes called ethnic unity. Some believe that ethnic unity was important enough to France and England that both countries considered intervention in the U.S. Civil War to protect their own national interests, a topic that I will go into more depth on in another podcast. From the North American perspective, both North and the South used it as they sought support from other countries for their side of the war. The South's use of ethnic unity to garner support for their cause was met with open ears from their ancestral countries. 
The Confederacy sought recognition, weapons, financial backing, and even military alliances from these countries. Britain especially leaned towards supporting the South because of how it echoed the historically aristocratic English society. British intellectuals compared the wealthy southern plantation owners, those individuals who derived their wealth by controlling land and directing serfs, or in the case of the South, slaves, to their European barons and dukes. This comparison helped Europeans better relate to southern culture than it did to those independently minded northerners. Because of this aristocratic tie, British observers thought the South was much better disciplined militarily and socially. They also had greater respect for the Southern Army's ability to confront and defeat the much larger armies of the North. In short, they viewed the pluck and courage of the South with greater appreciation than that of the North, who they viewed as a rabble of individuals that lacked the discipline needed to properly fight a war. Many of the Southern aristocratic class traced their ancestry to Scotland and or Ireland, countries where centuries of warfare with England had given the British a healthy appreciation for the courage, fortitude, and degree of bullheadedness found in the Scot-Irish culture. Combined with the aristocratic society, this ancestral tie fit well into the South's argument for ethnic unity, in spite of similar ancestries in the North. I do not make that assertion in any way to denigrate Southerners or Northerners, nor to promote any form of ethnic supremacy. But to me, there is some truth to the idea of ethnic unity. My ninth great-grandfather left Scotland in the mid-1600s, about the time King Charles I was beheaded at the end of the First British Civil War, most likely because he supported the crown. <clears throat> like many other Scots at the time, he avoided having his own head cut off by relocating to Barbados. In the early 1700s, he moved to Charleston, South Carolina in all likelihood to engage in the early slave trade in support of the island plantation owners who had befriended him. During this era, Caribbean plantation owners were purchasing Native Americans to work in the sugarcane fields on the islands. The African slave trade came a decade or so later. By the 1840s, my fifth great-grandfather had become part of the southern aristocracy with a plantation in Tennessee. When one of his children married her childhood sweetheart, the son of a local yeoman farmer who just lived up the road but across the state line in Kentucky, her father gave them a couple of slaves as a wedding gift, which the newlyweds promptly freed, causing a family rift that lasted for some time. This connection added a new dimension to my own personal identity and led to an interest in Scottish history. In a tribute of sorts to ethnic unity, I found that I could reestablish my historic Scottish clan affiliation by paying my dues through their 21st century website. Looking at my affinity for Scottish history and culture, it's not much of a mental leap to see how others, like my Scot-American ancestors, would seek to use those distant relationships to strengthen their political positions during the war, therefore developing the argument for ethnic unity. The South successfully used ethnic unity to negotiate for weapons and financial backing, which will be expanded on in another episode. They also used it to lobby for formal recognition and military alliances. The reason these never materialized will also be expanded on in another podcast on this series. The South also applied ethnic unity to their use of the American Revolution and those who led it as justification for secession. 
They noted that as plantation owners, American Revolutionary War leaders like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were both part of the Southern aristocracy and were, therefore, of the same ethnic background as the Confederate rebels. Never mind the fact that both Washington and Jefferson's ancestry goes back to Southern and Eastern England, and neither were from an aristocratic lineage. But one does not always deal in facts when arguing politics. In addition to ethnic unity, the Confederacy also used other arguments to garner support from other countries. For example, they justified their own actions by drawing parallels between their own rebellion and battles for independence in countries like Italy, Poland, Greece, and Mexico, who all gained independence during the early 1800s in roughly analogous circumstances to the South. Taken together, the Southern argument for ethnic unity, the South as a nursery of sorts for revolutionary leaders, and other recent rebellions were all arguments used to support a much broader plea in favor of self-determination. To some extent, this plea was simply an extension of a long-standing states' rights debate that originated with the Continental Congress of the Revolutionary War, a debate that found legal expression with the fledgling country's first constitution, known as the Articles of Confederation. Under the terms of this document, <clears throat> written by the Second Continental Congress to manage relationships between the rebelling colonies, the early United States was conceived as a loose association of separate states, or nations as we're using the term here. Article 2 of the Articles of Confederation states that each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, which is not expressly delegated to the United States. Also, Article 3 says that the states hereby severally enter into a firm league of friendship with each other. Based on these statements, the states that seceded argued, or could argue, that any signatory should be able to leave any time that nation, or state, fails to meet their needs, not unlike the power of the United States, or any other country for that matter, to unilaterally exit a treaty if the nation's leaders determine that leaving is in their country's best interest. This is essentially the same justification Jefferson used in the United States Declaration of Independence when he wrote, Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, those ends would be life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, that would be the country, and to institute a new government. Although this argument has few ties to the other arguments in favor of secession, it does provide the Confederacy with a type of political justification for their actions. However, when the other Southern arguments for self-determination as justification for succession, the rebellions in other countries, the argument that the leaders of the American Revolution were Southerners, if not actually Scot-Irish, and the concept of ethnic unity are taken together, they all echo the basic principle of ethnic nationalism, that the shared heritage of its citizens is what defines a nation. This shared heritage usually includes commonalities in language, faith, and ethnic ancestry. In essence, ethnic nationalism proposes that members of a nation are all members of a common family. We are all tied together through our common ancestry. Therefore, from the Southern point of view, the aristocratic society and the Scotch-Irish ancestry of Southern leadership gave them a cohesive ethnic heritage that qualified them to hold and maintain a separate nation from the North, who, from the position of the South, did not share this heritage. 
They may be Europeans, even Englishmen, but not Scot or Irish, just English, and French, and German, and Italian, and Scandinavian, and Spanish, and on, and on, and on. This point brings us back to the idea of nationalism and how the United States defined it without an aristocracy or a monarchy. Lincoln's challenge from the rest of the world was, in part, to address this issue. Lincoln countered the South's ethnic unity argument with his own type of nationalism, a form of civic, or what I call geographic, nationalism. This type of nationalism promotes the idea that everyone who lives within the geographic boundary of the nation are part of the country. Ethnicity, race, religion, and so forth have nothing to do with the viability of the country. He suggested this type of connection on July 4, 1861, in his first address to Congress, when he argued that secession called into question whether or not a constitutional republic or democracy can or cannot maintain its territorial integrity. Four years later, during his second inaugural address, he argued against the Southern position on secession and ethnic nationalism when he noted that if the minority, that's the South, will not acquiesce, that term is not often used today, it means to comply, conform, cave in, go along with, or simply accept the majority. That's the North must, or the government must cease. There is no other alternative for continuing the government is acquiescence on one side or the other. Put another way, the essence of American politics is the ability to compromise, but compromise requires communication. If you're not willing to communicate, compromise is impossible. And in situations where compromise is not possible, then either the minority or the majority must give in to the other side, or the nation's government will collapse. Intrinsic in his argument was Lincoln's position that the Founding Fathers did not create a path to permitting one or more states to leave the Union. Later, in his second inaugural address, Lincoln took the position that the Founding Fathers did not create a path to secession for a very practical reason when he stated, <clears throat> If a minority in such a case will secede rather than acquiesce, they make a precedent which in turn will divide and ruin them. For a minority of their own will secede from them whenever a majority refuses to be controlled by such a minority. For instance, why may not any portion of a new confederacy, a year or two hence, arbitrarily secede again, precisely as portions of the present Union now claim to secede from it? Plainly, the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy. In fact, making their argument for secession, the Confederacy failed to consider the imposition of the Constitution of 1788, which replaced the loose association created by the Articles of Confederation with a stronger, more cohesive political organization. This new organization incorporated a federal system that placed the needs of the individual states second to those of the nation as a whole. The Constitution permitted the states, acting collectively, to change the form of government but said nothing about prohibiting states from unilaterally leaving the Union. The idea that the federal government was superior to the states was formally established in 1819 in the landmark Supreme Court case McCullough v. Maryland. This change to the idea of self-determination that Jefferson used in the Declaration of Independence is where Lincoln's civic nationalism, or his secession leads to anarchy argument, seemingly trumps the Southern argument for ethnic nationalism. 
All that said, the Southern argument for self-determination was also a convenient defense to promote the institution of slavery, which is one of the other issues Europe was concerned with when observing the Civil War, one that will be discussed in another podcast in this series. Simply put, Lincoln's argument is to set aside ethnic nationalism in favor of civic nationalism, where all from all walks of life and all ancestries work together to create a nation with its own distinctive ethnic makeup that is composed of parts of all ethnicities within the boundaries of the nation. Although the arguments between ethnic and civic nationalism were substantial, it seems to me that the principle of ethnic unity was the issue that many in Europe leaned toward the most. Britain, as well as other countries, cared about the civil wars because they felt a kinship to Americans, especially the South. Although those feelings of kinship caused them to support both sides of the war, as evidenced by George Bell's experience with the Union Navy that I related in the introductory podcast of this series, they ultimately had little to do with their recognition of the Union as having the stronger moral position in the war. And although they disagreed with how the Union pressed its moral position, they ultimately recognized the importance of that position in the Northern victory. Tune into my other podcast in this series on the world's interest in the American Civil War, where I will go into greater detail into how this ethnic unity influenced their thoughts and actions about the Civil War, not just during the war years, but clear into the 1920s and possibly beyond that. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.